Thanks for downloading UW Alumni Voices podcast. I'm your host, Josh Van Camp. And, and today in studio, we've got Senior Lecturer at the School of Human Sciences, Dr. Cyril Gruder. Cyril, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. So how did you get into your world? Because you're a biological anthropologist. So what does a biological anthropologist do? Well, a biological anthropologist is really interested in the evolution and the variation of the human species. So we're also interested in how we differ from our closest relatives in nature, the primates. So I believe that without a point of reference in nature, we won't be able to tell what's unique about humans. So some bi biological anthropologists, they dig up bones, which gives us clues about our evolutionary past. Some biological anthropologists, they do more applied work. For example, they work in forensics. Mm -hmm. Some study traditional societies. And some study primates in the wild or in captivity. And they are called primatologists. And I myself work mostly on primates in the wild. So I consider myself a primatologist and a biological anthropologist. Now, was becoming a researcher always your career pathway? And you know, who, who's influenced your research the most? Well, let's look back a little bit. So the key event for me was the release of the Hollywood movie Gorillas in the Mist back in 1988, which details the life of Diane Fossey, the American primate researcher who was the first person to habituate wild gorillas to the presence of humans and document their behavior. So she was also a very strong-willed conservationist and an activist who fought for the survival of her study subjects, and she ultimately sacrificed her life for the gorillas. And I was just blown away by the magnificence of these animals and the dramatic country that they inhabit. And after watching the movie, I tried to learn everything I could about gorillas and other apes and primates in general. And I told my parents that I really want to follow in the footsteps of Diane Fossey. And miraculously, um, my childhood dream actually came true, but I had to wait for more than two decades for this to happen, but it did happen. And then later on when I was in high school, I think I was about 15, I contacted an eminent professor at the University of Zurich. He was a pioneer in the field of primatology and I requested an appointment. And I asked him questions about career trajectories. I guess he was not used to seeing such young you know, people approach him yeah. about asking about career trajectories. I'm not sure if he took me seriously, but it was very valuable advice for me. And then I went to university with the goal of becoming a primatologist. And when I started as an undergrad, I first had to take classes in subjects that I didn't enjoy much, such as physics and chemistry. But when I took my first anthropology class, I, was, I finally felt at ease. And after getting my bachelor's, I decided to travel to the heart of Africa on my own. And I picked Rwanda because of the gorillas. And Rwanda was still recovering from the genocide and the horrible civil war. And the national park where the gorillas live had been closed for a couple of years because of massive security problems in the area. But when it reopened, I was one of the first tourists to visit the gorillas. In fact, I was the only one. Nowadays, there's hundreds of people uh, visiting the gorillas every day and you have to book well in advance and you have to pay $1,500 to spend one hour with the gorillas. So there was absolutely no infrastructure at that time in Rwanda. Now there's a dozen of luxury safari lodges. And I was accompanied, I still remember that very well, by 30 armed soldiers when I entered the park. Wow. They said it was for protection from buffaloes, but it was because of the rebel groups that were still operating uh, along the border of Rwanda and the Congo. And then I get got to see the gorillas, and that hour with the gorillas was obviously a life-changing um, event. It was completely unforgettable. And then I signed up for a master's by research, and then later on a PhD, and I had the privilege to work on a very enigmatic species in China, the, the snub-nosed monkeys. I did a 20-month uh, study on them, so that was quite a pioneering effort. Yep. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that later when you ask me about the snub-noses. 
And after finishing my PhD at the University of Zurich, I saw an ad on the webpage of the prestigious Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany, and they were seeking a candidate to do a postdoc on mountain gorilla behavior in Rwanda. And I, of course, had to jump at this opportunity, and I was lucky to get shortlisted for the position. And when they offered me uh, the position, I was in heaven, really. So I did a 16-month stint in Rwanda studying the feeding ecology and the social structure of several gorilla groups. And I really loved that project. I mean, on the one hand, we collected data that helped us get a better understanding of the social dynamics of these um, animals. But we also collected data that were important for conservation management. Mm -hmm. Gorillas are critically endangered or endangered. So we tried to quantify if the gorillas were running out of food in the park. They live in a very small forest island surrounded by agricultural fields, and this is one of the most densely populated areas in Africa. And since the gorilla population had been steadily increasing due to um, conservation efforts, we were wondering if they were depleting the resources they need to survive. I want to touch on, I haven't prepared you on this, but you're talking about applying for that job in Germany, which just seems like perfect. How does someone like you prepare for a job interview like that? Um, you obviously have to try to convince um, um, the, the person who's interviewing you that you have the, the right skill set to do this kind of research, yep. quantitative skills. You also have to be extremely patient when you do field work. And uh, you need to have a, a reasonably good track record relative to opportunities. So you need to demonstrate that you're able to, um, to complete a research project, to write it up and to publish it. Did you have any doubt <coughs> you might not get the role? Um, yeah, I was... I was honestly not very sure about it mm. because I thought there, m there must be lots of applicants for such a, an amazing yeah, position. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, I want to talk about the process of developing a research project. Can you share how that takes place? Yeah, sure. So every research project essentially starts with an interesting question. And so how do we come up with an interesting question? So I often get inspired by reading the scientific literature attending a conference, chatting with colleagues, and sometimes simply by observing animals in the wild. And the next step is to choose an appropriate study species for your question. For example, if you're interested in, let's say, the evolution of monogamy, then it's a good idea to study gibbons, which are somewhat monogamous. And next, you have to think about feasibility. So there's so many constraints when you do a field research project. So for example, for behavioral research, your study subjects, they need to be habituated. They need to be used to the presence mm. of humans. Yep. And individual recognition is another problem. When I worked on the snub-nosed monkeys in China, they lived in a group of 400 individuals, and it turned out to be impossible to tell them apart. And just to give you um, an idea of what we're doing right now, we're currently developing a new project on nesting behavior in chimpanzees. So essentially, we want to find out what determines where the chimps sleep at night and what determines how their nests are built. So we want to examine, for example, the architecture of their nests. Do they build nests with better insulation properties when it's cold? And how can we, so we have to ask ourselves lots of questions. So how can we get access to the nests that are built high up in the trees? And where can we find a tree climber, you know, to help us with collecting the data? And what are the safety risks of a project like this? Will we get ethics approval for a project like that? So these are all um, questions that keep me up at night, and getting funding is another obstacle that we have to overcome, obviously. And you also need to apply for research permits, and this can be a very lengthy process, especially in Africa. In some countries, there are very transparent procedures mm -hmm. in place uh, that you have to follow to get research clearance, but in other countries, it's all about social capital. For example, in China, it's essential to have a network of relationships and knowing influential people that can pull some strings for you. 
And then you have to think about logistics. Where can we get supplies when we work at the field site? Where, where can we find local assistance? Mm -hmm. So there is so much more to a field research project than just the science. There's a lot to take in there. And <coughs> I think for a lot of people who would you know, meet you for the first time and find out what you do and how do you explain what your research is and you know also why is your research so important and what spurred you to study primates apart from seeing the film in 88 yep well i think i still need to work a little bit on my elevator pitch but what i usually say when people ask me this question is that i study the behavior and social organization of our closest relatives in nature because this can help us understand our own social evolution or something along these lines mm. And primates are really interesting in their own right. There's 400 and actually 500 species of primates out there, and wow. there's so much variation in behavior, in morphology, in their cognitive abilities. So by understanding what led to that diversity, we can actually make a contribution to evolutionary theory. And primates also have very important ecological functions. For example, some primates disperse seeds and they help to f uh, the forest to regenerate. So no. if the primates are gone, the forest will die. Wow. Primates are also important to human health uh, because they are closely related to us. So when we study diseases in wild primates, we can shed light on the origins and transmission of pathogens. Mm -hmm. And that obviously has implica implications for human health. And primates are also culturally and economically important. Think, for example, of the famous Monkey King uh, legend in China. Mm -hmm. um, primates can also be a magnet for ecotourists. I've already touched on that. Mm -hmm. For many, for example, a highlight uh, of a trip to Indonesia is visiting a rehabilitation station for orangutans, right? And of course, the mountain gorilla tourism in Rwanda is one of the most important mm -hmm. uh, sources of revenue for that country. And I've already said that primates can offer clues about human evolution, but what's really important is that we um, remind ourselves that primates are threatened with extinction. 60% of primate species are threatened with extinction, to be precise. And the major threat across the globe is habitat loss. So we extract timber, we drill for oil and gas, we convert their natural habitats to into cattle ranches, mm -hmm. palm oil plantations, you name it. So I really hope that my research helps to sensitize people to the plights of our natural heritage. And I try to disseminate my findings as widely as possible through social media, mm -hmm. newspapers, podcasts. And so I see myself as an advocate for our natural heritage. Are you an advocate for ecotourism as well? Because there are a lot of places that do it fantastic, but then there's always the people that are just trying to make an extra buck and not do things necessarily the right way. Well, as long as ecotourism is strictly controlled and adheres to um, ethical guidelines, I fully support it. Mm. It's a major um, source of revenue for some of those countries and some of the income actually goes into local community projects. So they have this revenue sharing program. Good ecotourism projects have yeah. this revenue sharing program. Awesome, no, that's <coughs> great, that's great to hear. Now, what can we learn from monkeys and apes that offer insights into the roots of human nature? So as I, I've already said, they're our closest genetic relatives um, and they give us information about the ancestry of our own species. So humans share 98% of their DNA or 98% of the same kind of genes with chimpanzees. So we can't really know what is uniquely human without knowing the traits of our nearest relatives. And many traits uh, that were originally thought to be uniquely human, they have turned out to be also found in primates. And I just wanna, uh, but it, this is important, these traits take more rudimentary forms in primates. In humans, everything is a, a little bit, it's on a different level. I just wanna give you two examples sure. here. 
So the first one is the existence of traditions that are transmitted through social learning, and that's really a hallmark of human mm. societies. Um, we see cultural variation across the globe, but culture is now also known to have deep roots among the common ancestors of humans and the great apes. So humans do things in different ways in different places, right? In China, people generally eat with chopsticks. Here, people generally eat with forks and knives. In France, people French kiss in public. You don't really see that very often here. So there's cultural differences. But we see the exact same thing in our closest relatives in the chimpanzees. For example, in West Africa, they use stone hammers to open hard-shelled nuts. But in East Africa, they don't do that. Even though there are stones and nuts, but there's simply no tradition or culture of using them. So they haven't yeah. invented that behavior yet. And the second example, this is another distinctly human trait, is prosociality, which means caring about others. And it was already Adam Smith who pointed out 200 years ago that humans well, are often self-interested, but they also feel concern for the welfare of others. Mm -hmm. And if you look at our relatives in nature, the primates, there's so many descriptions of spontaneous assistance among primates, especially among the great apes. But as I said earlier, the scale of cooperation and altruism that we see in humans is different from non-humans. Humans even help a complete stranger. Um, a couple of years ago, we did a, an experiment across the city of Perth. It's called a lost letter experiment. Wow. So we dropped letters across different suburbs, hundreds of letters, and we counted the number of letters that were returned, that were picked up by passers-by and put in the mail. Yep. So this is a very simple measure of how willing you are to go out of your way to help a stranger. And we were surprised to see that more than 50% of the letters that we had dropped were actually returned. Okay. And then we replicated the study um, two years later, and we found the exact same pattern. So this really tells you that humans have this, you know, this inclination to help a stranger. So humans are amazing. We are very good at getting along with strangers. We can sit calmly in an airplane with, uh, for a 10-hour flight with 300 or more strangers. If you were to put 300 random chimps in a plane, I can guarantee you they would rip each other uh, to pieces. <laughs> they just, that, that's really what distinguishes humans from yeah. uh, chimps, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to that letter drop. No, you said 50% of the letters were returned. <coughs> How? What, what were your expectations? Did you think maybe 20, 25%? Did you have a, a KPI set in place? Um, we we did expect that a, a, a significant amount of letters would be returned, but not more than 50%. Sure. That's that's quite a good good result. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be happy with that. Now, one <coughs> of your projects is causes and consequences of intergroup conflict in mountain gorillas, which you kind of touched on about with the gorillas being on the plane. What are your objectives for this project, and what's the difference between gorillas managing conflict compared to humans? So, conflict or conflict between group is really one of my main focus areas, and that's a topic that has a very long history in primatology. Actually, Jane Goodall, uh, one of my heroes. She discovered back in 1971 that wild chimpanzees sometimes go to war. So chimpanzee males, they patrol and defend the territories, and they sometimes penetrate deep into the area that is controlled by neighboring groups, and sometimes they kill members of neighboring groups. So that's warfare. In gorillas, uh, the situation is a little bit different. Uh, gorillas are generally portrayed as very peaceful, mm -hmm. as peaceful giants, uh, except perhaps in, in some movies. But they, in, in some Hollywood movies to be precise, but they can actually be brutal. I will never forget that morning in the Virunga volcanoes in Rwanda when I was doing field work, and all of a sudden, a lone silverback, uh, a silverback male, 
He showed up in our study group and his arrival triggered a massive attack. I remember all the resident silverbacks in our study group started attacking that you know, intruder and they were, uh, they were beating him and they were kicking him. So he was outnumbered by the 45 gorillas in our group and there was no cause involved in attacking him. And then later on he had flesh wounds all over his body and he died a few days later from an infection. So that's an example of extreme violence that we see in gorillas. But on the other hand, we've also seen gorilla groups intermingling without any obvious signs of aggression. So I wanted to, or we, my PhD student and I wanted to explain why gorillas sometimes beat the crap out of each other, forgive my language, and sometimes tolerate each other. So my ex-PhD student, Mel Merville, she worked very closely with the Karisoki Research Center in Rwanda, and she observed several interactions between wild gorilla groups, and she recorded what was happening at that time. And she also got access to the long-term database of the research center to complement her mm. um, uh, data. So she looked at the variables that influenced whether an encounter between two gorilla groups turned out to be aggressive or peaceful. And we found that familiarity and relatedness played a major role in easing tensions. So when two groups met and individuals knew each other from the past, maybe they grew up in the same group. Then encounters were much more peaceful. And also when the silverbacks, the leader males, were related to each other, uh, biologically related, then they were much less likely to resort to violence. Now turning to humans, you asked me about uh, differences and similarities mm. between um, uh, apes and humans. So we see the same spectrum when it comes to between group um, conflict or between group interactions. Warfare has obviously featured quite prominently mm -hmm. in the discussion of yep. human intergroup interactions, but peaceful and cooperative alliances among members of different groups are also very common in human communities. So some scholars argue that ape and human warfare are shared because of a common ancestry. So they go all the way back to the last common ancestor of humans and apes. But some anthropologists, like sociocultural anthropologists, they believe that warfare was very rare or non-existent in the remote past, and it only became common with the advent of um, permanent settlements, agriculture, and food storage. But there is very good archaeological evidence um, from before the adoption of agriculture, which suggests that warfare among hunter-gatherers was quite frequent. There's also similarities between humans and apes when it comes to between group conflict, um, as I've already said, but there's also differences. Unlike gorillas, humans use weapons in intergroup conflict. If you look at traditional societies, they use spears and clubs and arrows. We obviously don't see that in apes. So, okay, so warfare is a human universal, but people have also discovered a number of ways for making war less common and less destructive. For example, there's very good evidence that warfare is less common among states that are democratic and have market-based economies. So states or communities that trade with each other are much less likely to fight one another. And that's another topic that I'm currently um, very interested in. How do we overcome conflict between uh, two groups? I want to go back to the, the silverback fight. You were there. I you was saw there, it. Yeah. Were you scared? Did you fear for your life at all? Because I can't imagine being in that situation, just seeing this, I guess you could say, poor silverback getting absolutely the crap kicked out of him. Yeah. It's crazy. It, it was crazy. To be honest, I wasn't too scared at that moment. There yep. was another incident that really scared me, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Sure. When those two groups met each other, they were just so focused on each other, so they completely ignored the researchers. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should mention that those gorillas, they had 
you know, they had lived among humans for such a long time, so they didn't really, you know, care much about the presence of observers. Sure. Okay, good to know. Now, you've <coughs> worked on projects focusing on the black and white snub-nosed monkeys, which we've touched on before. I'm curious to hear about what were your discoveries there and what is so unique about these monkeys? Well, th the black and white uh, snub-nosed uh, monkeys are very peculiar animals. Um, first of all, they have these very big red lips. They look a bit like plastic surgery gone too far, <laughs> if, if you've seen a picture of them. And they're unusual in many ways. They, first of all, they live in supergroups of several hundred individuals. Wow. And they also live in seasonally cold mountainous forests at very high elevations in southeastern Tibet and mm -hmm. southwestern China. They have actually been recorded to go as high as 4,600 meters. So that's higher than the highest mountain in my home country, Switzerland. Wow. So why do they go up there and how do they survive up there and why do they form these super large groups? So these were the two main questions when I started mm -hmm. my PhD. How do they cope with such a harsh environment, especially in winter? What do they eat when there's little food available in winter? And as it turns out, um, they feed mostly on lichens that grow on those conifer trees. So that's it's we call it a fallback food. So when there's nothing av else available yep. in their environment, when there's no fruits and young leaves, they just turn to those lichens. And that's really a survival strategy yep. for them to live in the Himalayas. And then the second question of my PhD was, why do they live in such large groups? And what is the structure of these groups? And it turns out that these supergroups are substructured. So it's essentially a bunch of small harems that cluster together into larger bands. So we call that a multi-level society. And I would argue that humans also live in multi-level societies, although the core units are usually um, you know, families or yep. pair bonds and not necessarily yep. harems. Um, so what's the purpose of forming these very large groups? So we have some evidence that they are better protected from bachelor males when they form these large groups. So we saw very large groups of bachelor males that were constantly following the harems and waiting for an opportunity to challenge the leader male and take over his RM. So by forming these bands, the, the core units, they benefit from safety in numbers. And they sometimes also collectively chase the bachelors away. So as a behavioral ecologist or primatologist, we always uh, wor think about the costs and benefits uh, of a behavior. Like, why do they form these large groups? I mean, they must face a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's 400 individuals in a large group. But there must be some benefits as well. Otherwise, th that would that trait would never have evolved in the first place. That's amazing. Now, you've spent months in remote locations studying primates, you know, we've touched on China, Rwanda. What does the typical day on location look like? How risky is your research? Mm -hmm. We've kind of touched on that before. And what precautions must you take? Because, and, you know, I do want to know about the near misses that you've yep. taken place in the field. So when I was in Rwanda, I had my own house in a town, which was about 45, a 45 minute drive away from the national park. So life was quite comfortable. Every morning we would drive up to the park and then we would start hiking. Um, it took us anywhere from 30 minutes to five hours to reach the gorillas. And my main study group preferred to use the alpine areas uh, near the top of the dormant volcanoes where they gorged themselves on blackberries and other treats. And so when we reached the gorillas, we first had to appease them. We basically had to announce that we come in peace. So we had to make those gorilla sounds like <coughs> <coughs> and that really helped, you know, to, to, to appease the gorillas. Yep. And then we started collecting data until the afternoon. So we were only allowed to spend four hours with the gorillas every day. So that was meant to minimize disturbance to the animals. Sometimes exciting things happen. For example, when two gorilla groups, you know, met, but 
it can also be a little bit boring, especially around noon when the gorillas take an extended nap and um, there's not much going on. Y all you can hear is their bowel movements. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they eat lots of salad every day and yeah. they have to digest around lunchtime. So it's, yeah, it's not that interesting from a, there's not much going on in terms of social behavior sure. at that time. And we also collected some samples. We collected urine samples for a study on their energy balance. So getting a urine sample was quite a challenge, as you can imagine, from a wild gorilla. Yeah. So we tried to get the urine samples straight from tap, you know, just <laughs> to, avoid the to, to avoid contamination with the soil, <laughs> yep. to get a pure sample. I've never heard of that term before. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah, that was quite an interesting experience. So I spent quite a bit of time just staring at the gorillas and looking at their private parts in the hope, you know, that I would be able mm -hmm. to collect one of those samples. And then late in the afternoon or in the evening when we were back in town, we would often enter the data that we uh, had collected into a laptop. And we also had to process some of the samples that we collected in the field. So that was Rwanda. When I did field work in China, I lived in a remote village that was inhabited by ethnic minority groups. And we had a reasonably comfortable research base from where we would hike up the mountain um, every day to track the snub-nosed monkeys. So we often hiked from our base, which was at 2,600 meters, all the way up to 3,500 mm -hmm. or even 4,000 meters. So it often took us several hours to reach our study group. And the terrain at that site was very rugged and the slopes were extremely steep. And the work was physically extremely demanding. I don't think I could still do it, to be honest. <laughs> In, I mean, I, ca I can hike up there, but I'm not sure if I could do it on a, on a, on a daily sure. basis. So in winter, we had to walk through snow. In summer, we had to walk through mud, and we had to try to keep the leeches mm -hmm. away. They were very annoying. And when we found our study group, we would usually observe them from a distance using a spotting scope and record their behavior using a, a research protocol. We did that to um, avoid disturbance to the animals. They were not fully habituated, mm -hmm. so we tried to keep a distance from them. And we usually stayed with the group until late afternoon or early evening, and then we headed back down the mountain. I still remember those cold beers that we had when we got back to the research base in the evening. They were very refreshing after <laughs> a hard day in the field. Sometimes we camped up in the mountains to reduce the commute time, sure. so to speak. Yep. But that meant carrying lots of heavy supplies up the mountain and was logistically quite challenging. Now you ask me about the risks. So. I would say the main risk in the field is slipping and tripping in rugged terrain. I remember I once busted my knee and I couldn't go to the field for about a month afterwards. S so that knee injury is actually still causing me pain um, now. So it's a reminder that one should be extra careful, especially on the way down on those slippery slopes. And when you're tired, um, you have to be careful. Yeah. And I've already said that the political situation in Rwanda is still volatile. Other risks include diseases such as malaria which is not a big problem in um, the Rwandan highlands, but it's prevalent at lower sure. elevations. In China, there's venomous snakes in the field, um, and there were all these stray dogs in the villages that, was, that I was a bit afraid of. And sometimes getting to the field site was quite a harrowing experience, especially in mountainous China. Especially in the rainy season, landslides are very common on those uh, precipitous mountain roads. I still remember this very well. Once we traveled in a convoy, on one of those mountain roads in the rainy season in um, Montaigne, China, and the car in front of us, he got buried by a landslide. <gasps> 
And that was quite a traumatic experience for me. It could have been me, right? I was lucky to be in the car in the back and Ooh. not in the car in the front. I was not expecting that. No. And y you asked me about near misses. So once I got attacked by a gorilla, <laughs> I actually got attacked by a subordinate peripheral silverback. So in, a, in, in that gorilla group, so there was one dominant silverback, there was a second in command, and there were several low-ranking gorillas, gorilla males, yeah. that, that lived at the periphery of the group. Sure. And that was at the beginning of my field work. I tried to get a picture of that gorilla because I was trying to identify all the gorillas in the group. Yeah. So I had to go, go reasonably close to get a good uh, mock shot of that gorilla. And I went a little bit too close, and no one had warned me about the personality of that gorilla. Sure. They all have different personalities. Okay. And that one was apparently a very aggressive one. So when I got too close, he first started threatening me. And how close were you? To I them? was. We were not allowed to go closer than seven meters sure. to the gorillas. Yep. Uh, but I, I probably was about four or five meters away at that time. Sometimes it's difficult, you know, with the vegetation. So yep. y you, you, you can't really keep that distance yep. sometimes. And then he started attacking me, and he grabbed my arm, and he pushed me to the ground. And then he was just staying in that position for about a minute or so, and. All I could do, you know, is I, I couldn't try to, 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 to you know, to, to flee or, 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 so I had to stay put and I tried to make those um, gorilla yep. sounds, you know, those appeasing sounds that we usually do when we approach the gorillas. In, um, it was a very scary moment because a male gorilla silverback is extremely strong and powerful. And how big are they? Because you. You're, those that don't, you know, you're, you're over six foot. Yep. Uh, you're not a small guy. No. And yet, how big are these gorillas? Well, a silverback male can weigh as much as 200 kilos. Wow. Yeah, so I had a 200 kilo silverback male on top of me, pushing me to the ground. Jeez. And I couldn't free myself. There was no way. And it would probably just have made things worse. So I just stayed put and I waited for the gorilla to lose his interest in me. And I think it was just a warning, fortunately. Yep. <laughs> So after about a minute or so, he let go, and yeah, I was released. That was quite a, a, a dramatic experience. I can it, imagine. It only happened once yeah. in 16 months of field work. Wow. I mean, I definitely learned my lesson. Yeah, <laughs> I just found it interesting that you were doing all these things with the, with the gorillas and monkeys, and yet the stray dogs were the ones that probably scared you the most. Yeah, because they were always around in the village. Yeah. And... Uh, we, the, we kind of knew the gorillas. They had, as I said, they had different personalities. So mm -hmm. we knew which ones to avoid and yep. which ones to approach. There was also one female. She just didn't like me. Every time I approached her a little bit too closely, when I stared at her while she was feeding, yeah. she just constantly gave me a warning. You know, yeah. she, yeah, she d she didn't feel comfortable around humans. L I guess or around me. <laughs> yeah, well, at least she got a warning, which is good. Now I'm curious, how do you engage with the human communities in the places where you conduct your research? Um, so in China, we work closely with local villagers um, who used to be hunters and gatherers. So they were excellent at reading signs in the forest and tracking the elusive snub-nosed monkeys. Without their help, this would have been a mission impossible. So they knew the forest in and out. Mm -hmm. In Rwanda, we worked with experienced trackers at the Karizoki Research Center. So very well trained and very knowledgeable. And uh, they, they obviously also knew the field in and out. And I also tried to participate in local community activities whenever I could, and sometimes invited my local helpers for drinks and for a meal. So I really tried to bond with them because we were essentially one community, you know, working together. Mm -hmm. yep. 
And we also did some uh, local capacity building. Uh, for example, once uh, my PhD student organized a day in the field for local students, which gives them the sort of exposure they need to start caring about these magnificent animals and their environment. So when we do field work, we live and work in a place or in a culture that is very different from our own. And this can be a life enriching experience, obviously, but it, it also provides endless opportunities for misunderstandings. And it's really important that we try to conform to the local norms mm -hmm. as much as possible. I was struggling a little bit with that at the beginning, but I think now I blend in quite well. I just want to give you one example. In rural areas um, of China, foreign guests, they're usually treated with a banquet, especially uh, by local government functionaries. When you arrive in, the, in, the, in town or in, in a village, you know, they treat you with a banquet. Yep. And the default drink on such occasions is Chinese uh, um, grain liquor, which is extremely strong. And it's not something that everyone likes. But guests are expected to drink that. And it can be considered really rude to turn down an offer sure. to have a toast with your host. Actually, a friend of mine, he once literally got kicked out of a Tibetan village because he refused to drink the local schnapps. I, it was just so against the local norms. Wow. It's yeah. So we have to try to blend in yeah. if we want to be successful with our work in a place like that. Was was your friend what doesn't drink alcohol? Which just wasn't he, feeling he, it at the time. No, he he doesn't drink alcohol. Yeah, yeah. and it's he, we probably could have explained that to our host, but that was early on, you yeah. know. And my Chinese was not very good, yeah. so yeah, it was an awkward situation. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you said Chinese isn't very good. So did you have to learn Mandarin and other different languages through your research projects? I I, I did learn some Mandarin. It was mostly um self-learning sure. so i just relied on phrase books and grammar books and dictionaries and i practiced my chinese every day when i was in the field with my local helpers and there was a time when i was completely alone in that village it was just me without an assistant who could translate yep. so i was i was i had this incentive you know to invest into learning chinese because i needed it every day is that something you encourage for all young researchers to maybe even learn a new language even future projects it's definitely beneficial to know some of some simple sentences in sure. the local language. Yeah. It just opens doors, you know. People will just feel uh, they feel will feel that you respect them, yeah. and uh, it it really helps. It's it's a good icebreaker. <laughs> now we're coming towards <coughs> the end, but really want to know where does the passion come from? Because it couldn't have just been just from that movie in '88. Well, I, I'd say as. As I mentioned before, the apes and other primates, they are our closest relatives in nature, and we can learn so much about them, about our own um, evolutionary history. So we can learn some fundamental things about human nature simply by observing them and, and studying them. So I'm not happy with superficial explanations of human behavior. I really want to dig as deep as possible, and which in my case means comparing or contrasting humans with apes. Yep. And as I said, many uh, primates are at the brink of extinction and learning more about their behavior and about their ecology and raising awareness for their plight might increase their survival chances, which, yeah, don't look very um, uh, promising. So this is another strong motivation for doing this kind of re research. Yeah. Now, if people want to learn more about your research or get in contact with you, what's the best way, Cyril? Um, they can contact me through email. They can approach me after a lecture. Um, have a look at my website. Perfect. Awesome. Well, I'm going to put all those details in the, in the blur for the podcast. But Cyril, that's all the time we've got. Thank you so much. Learn an absolute ton and absolutely love what you're doing. And hopefully looking forward to seeing what the future holds. Thank you so much. Thank you.